0: Hello everybody! Welcome back to the Ocean Impact Podcast. This is episode two of our Pitchfest 2022 series. We are super excited to be back in the saddle with the Pitchfest series. Today, we've got a great episode with Amber Sparks. She's the co-founder of Fishlat and Blue Latitudes. My name is Amelia. I'll be one of your co-hosts for today. But as always, I am joined by Tim Silverwood. Tim, how are you going? This is such a great entry. They were the winner of of the Monitoring Spotlight Award presented by Dicker Data as part of Pitchfest 2022, how great is it that we have awesome partners to shine a light on this technology?
1: It's awesome. I mean, we're out there with our mission to... Find support and accelerate the best ocean impact startups, but we only do that through the support of our partners and people who really believe in our mission. So, thanks, Dica Data. You've been on board supporting the Monitoring Spotlight Award for a while now, and we look forward to a really exciting future with you. And here we have Fishlat. We really were impressed with what this women-owned and operated operation, uh, based out of the states, but doing some fantastic work around the world to figure out how there's this linkage between fisheries and ecosystems and offshore infrastructure. So this was a really, really interesting conversation and a very strong entry for PitchFest 2022.
0: It was, and it was strong. And obviously, you know, that's why they came away with the Monitoring Spotlight Award. Um, So FishLap is a spatial planning tool and it does many things. But the most fascinating of these, for me at least, uh, is that it can predict the impact on the marine environment of decommissioning offshore oil and gas structures. Now, you know, this is really important because with hopefully a strong shift and a strong transition towards renewable energy, decommissioning of these structures, you know, is inevitable. And repurposing them into artificial reefs actually has some benefits over simply removing them.
1: Absolutely. And this is an emerging field of science, even though people have been transforming rigs to reefs for for quite some time. I think there's cases in the Gulf of Mexico right back to the 1980s and that the fishermen are absolutely ecstatic when that happens because it really does support uh, biodiversity and fish stocks in the region. But the big problem is as we move to a Decarbonized future is there is a ginormous volume of these huge infrastructure pieces and pipelines out there in the ocean and the price tag to actually decommission them will make your eyeballs fall out of your head. So what is the science saying around the other options of actually utilising them as uh, places where ocean biodiversity can flourish and can be linked into marine protected areas to boost fish stocks and really let's have our eyes open as we look at it obviously we don't want the giant oil and gas companies getting away when and saving all that money and not investing it back into the impact that the the legacy of their infrastructure has but we do need to follow the science which is exactly what the guys from Fishlat are doing with their solution
0: that is it and You know, it's really fascinating. We've seen some some studies recently come out about this. But actually, for certain species, there is kind of an edge that artificial reefs can have over natural reefs. Obviously, natural reefs are awesome. We love them. We want more of them and we want to protect them. But for certain species, there's some advantages like they aren't susceptible to trawling because their structure actually physically prevents that. Uh, they can provide extra shelter, a safer breeding ground. What the science is telling us is that there's some really intriguing you know, points to consider in the you know, transition that's going to happen and in decommissioning um, these rigs. And then the idea that the thinking can be applied to future offshore energy structures. Like those for renewables and fish like spatial planning tool, it can also look at that. And like I said, it had many, many benefits. We've only kind of brushed the surface here, but I think Amber really showed like a direct link between. You know what needs to happen, what's going to be a challenge in future and how this tool can help and uh, and that's what you want you know when you're building a startup to be able to really show people well we can help, we can address this issue.
1: Yeah, and you know you've identified there two major customer segments for these guys to be working on. you've got the decommissioning of these ginormous volume of uh, offshore oil and gas infrastructure. But then you also have, on the flip side, a huge surge in demand for offshore uh, renewable industries, renewable energy industries. So the team are really well positioned. Uh, They've got a huge uh, treasure trove of experience in working in this industry. They've got some fantastic credentials, wonderful team, and, yeah, we just can't wait to see where they head next with their uh, their wonderful spatial tool and all their offerings.
0: That's it. It's a fantastic episode. I know people are going to find this one really fascinating. Let us know what you think. Enjoy this one. A huge thank you to Amber and thank you, Tim. And I hope everyone enjoys.
1: Thanks, everyone. Welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast Pitchfest 2022 series. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Amber Sparks, who is a co-founder of Fishlat and Blue Latitudes. Here is to tell us about their awesome solution that was so good that it was recognized as a finalist in Pitchfest 2022 and also won the Ocean Monitoring Spotlight Award presented by Dickadata. Thanks for being here, Amber.
2: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
1: So tell us a little bit about Fish Slat and Blue Latitudes, specifically the ocean opportunity or the ocean challenge area that you're trying to solve.
2: I'd love to. So what we're really looking at here is how fisheries and offshore energy worldwide have concurrently developed with offshore oil and gas platforms providing important fisheries habitat and fishing opportunities for many commercial and recreational fisheries. Yet as our blue economy shifts away from oil and gas and towards more renewable energy resources, the decommissioning of these offshore platforms is imminent and there are unknown implications for fisheries. But there is a solution whereby these platforms can be repurposed as reefs, which not only helps to preserve the habitat, but also promote open ocean health and kind of retain that habitat for the local fisheries. So Blue Latitude's work, which is primarily focused around repurposing offshore oil and gas platforms into permanent artificial reefs, led to the development of FISHLAT, or Fisheries Location Assessment Technology, which is a ArcGIS web-based spatial planning tool that helps ocean managers predict how oceanographic changes and the site-specific removal, reefing, or even future installation of an offshore energy structure will impact fishing activity and fisheries resources.
1: Fantastic. So this is really interesting. So Blue Latitudes, women-owned, um, predominantly operated, kind of consultancy, but through all your experience and understanding and knowledge around these imminent challenges around offshore infrastructure, you've realized there's a scalable opportunity using this spatial technology. So tell us a little bit more about just how scalable this solution might be.
2: Absolutely. So what we're finding is that under different management scenarios, Regulators as well as industry stakeholders are looking for opportunities to get more information about our oceans. It's just not readily available to them. So what FishLat provides is a tool that looks at oceanographic and ecological fisheries use data and compiles it into one place. An interactive platform that they can go into and see for a specific platform how removing it or reefing it would impact fisheries. And this really helps them in management of their fisheries as well as understanding um, how it's gonna impact this important stakeholder. Right now, FishLad is a prototype in the Gulf of Mexico, but we're looking to scale it into other areas around the US and international because there are oil platforms in every ocean on the planet. And, all of these structures are going to have to be removed at a certain point. So having these kind of international standardized tools that can help both fisheries managers and oil and gas companies understand how their work in the ocean impacts fisheries is going to be a, a critical bridge to GAP. And that's what we're hoping to do there.
1: Great. So the the ultimate customers for FishLat for this expansion of the um, of the software of the tools internationally are going to be those sort of oil and gas uh, companies as well as fisheries managers is there some other customers as well that you can foresee in the pipeline
2: potentially we also see the application of fish for offshore wind because albeit the energy that's produced through offshore wind can be much cleaner the structure that's in the water column is very similar to an oil and gas platform. It's got beams and cross beams, almost like the scaffolding of a building that stretches from seafloor to sea surface, or in some cases, their structures are floating. But that infrastructure in the saltwater marine environment attracts marine life. Initially, you see small invertebrates and uh, scallops, anemones, mussels, things like that. And then over time, the habitats grow and encompass larger marine species, whether that be a fisheries species, or even they've seen different types of whales and marine mammals that come in the vicinity of these structures primarily for feeding and, and what have you. So what we're looking at is expanding the tool, not only for oil and gas, but also to be applied to other industries like offshore wind. But instead of assisting offshore wind in determining where to remove or how removing a structure is going to impact them, it will be all about siting, how siting an offshore wind structure will impact fisheries.
1: I love it because I'm imagining people out there tuning into this podcast and, and listening to this little opening introduction going, okay, so we're talking here about positive ocean impact, yet we're talking about petroleum infrastructure off the coastline. But what you're really saying is there is a massive problem associated with these ageing objects out there in the oceans off coastlines that needs to be addressed. But you're also pointing to the future horizon, which suggests there's going to be a huge increase in these structures associated with wind and, and energy as uh, as another opportunity for you. So, yeah, let's maybe go a little bit deeper there to just un- let people understand how fascinating it is about the biological diversity that is attracted to these offshore existing oil and gas rigs and and infrastructure.
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So I'm a marine scientist by training. I went to Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego where I actually met my business partner when we were doing our graduate work there. And we did a joint thesis on how these structures offshore provide environmental, ecological, and economic resources, and really how reefing them would be, is it viable? Is that actually a good idea? And what we found is there's been a lot of research on these offshore platforms as reefs. And in California, where we were doing a lot of our thesis work, they've been found to be some of the most productive ecosystems on the planet. That's more productive than our nearshore reefs or mangroves. And the secret really lies in the structure itself, stretching from seafloor to sea surface. These are massive structures with lots of complexity beams and cross beams that make for excellent habitat for marine life. And over time, they develop into important ecosystems that are supporting what is happening in the near shore area. So it's been a really interesting thing to study. And understand that these reefs are valuable, but at a certain point, the oil wells dry up and we have to strike this balance between offshore energy and the environment and understanding how can we work with these two groups that typically don't come together to find opportunities for ocean conservation. And that's what we do really at, at Blue Latitudes.
1: I love it. So we can all picture these incredible thriving undersea ecosystems around this infrastructure. But as you've alluded, eventually the oil dries up and the companies involved and the jurisdictions have to do something about it, right? So tell us a little bit about what happens currently? What are the options once it's time to decommission? And maybe give us a bit of a glimpse at just how costly and problematic that process can become and why this opportunity to reef the rig is so appealing.
2: Yes. So typically in a decommissioning scenario, a platform, an oil platform is completely removed from the seafloor. So all the wells are sealed and capped And oil companies retain liability for those wells in perpetuity. So should there ever be a leak or a spill, they're always responsible. And then what you see from your beach chair or the top side is removed. And what you have left is this infrastructure, almost like the scaffolding of a building. It's they could be the size of the Empire State Building. And that's the platform infrastructure where all the marine life has been developed, developing below the surface. And so typically through a decommissioning, scenario, that platform would be completely removed from the water column, restoring the seabed back to its original condition. However, removing a structure, some the size of the Empire State Building, from the ocean environment, especially when it is covered in marine life, can be not only technically challenging, have risks to health and safety, but also incredibly costly. So there are alternatives such as reefing the structure where The wells are sealed and capped. And again, the oil companies retain liability for those wells. The top side, or what you see from your beach chair, is removed. And then that platform jacket is repurposed. It's either cut down to 80 feet so that 80 feet below the water surface so that ships can safely draft over it without running into the structure, or the structure could be toppled on its side or towed to an area of ecosystem need no matter which reefing scenario is selected, the purpose of reefing is to retain that platform jacket in the water column in some capacity so that it can continue to support marine life as an artificial reef. And this is a tried and true practice that's been done in the Gulf of Mexico for over 30 years. We have over 500 reef platforms. And in California, we have a rigs to reef law they've been reefing platforms and investigating um, new opportunities to do it in thailand off the coast of west west africa so there are places around the world that are really looking into this alternative not only as a way to to retain the habitat that's developed there over the lifespan of the platform but also save significant decommissioning costs
1: yeah do you have any indication of those costs i mean i think i you know I, I hear about just the figures attached to decommissioning rigs and i know the numbers just blow my mind but then i'm assuming that there's huge cost savings where do they go when the decision is made to to reef a rig do they do they flow back to the the ocean in a certain way like tell us about where those savings can be most beneficial
2: yes so in the us with our rigs to reef laws that we have in place typically there is a 50%, about 50% reduction in decommissioning costs. And that cost savings is shared with the oil companies and the state. So that means that there's an influx of money to the state. It goes specifically into an endowment for marine preservation and conservation that's managed by de- the Department of Fish and Wildlife in their respective states. So like in Louisiana and Texas, their departments of fish and wildlife have some incredible funds that have been populated through reefing. In California, where we only have 27 platforms, so we're kind of a smaller case study, but in California, our percentage of cost sharing is actually greater. So the oil companies only retain 20% of their saved costs and 80% of saved costs go back to the state into that endowment for marine preservation and conservation that I mentioned. And those funds can be used by the state to not only fuel the Department of Fish and Wildlife, but also be funneled into different ocean conservation initiatives and ocean science projects throughout the state. In California, they've estimated that reefing, reefing 24, 23 of our 27 platforms would result in 1 billion in saved costs. So that would mean, according to that eighty twenty split, that eighty percent of that one billion, or eight hundred million, would go to the state into an endowment for marine preservation and conservation.
1: Fantastic! So I really like this because I'm imagining there's there's people out there who are perhaps a little bit skeptical or cynical and thinking no those oil and gas companies need to be completely responsible for the removal of what they put into the ocean like you can you can sit here with a great deal of confidence and really lay down some facts and some truths about how this could be really beneficial you've mentioned a few locations what about those locations where they're using floating structures or different types of systems to be extracting oil and gas? Like, does this work in all scenarios or is it really limited to certain types of structures?
2: That's a good question. And every platform needs to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. Unfortunately, this isn't a blanket program that's just going to work for every structure. It depends on where that structure is located. For example, if it's at the base of the Mississippi River where there's a ton of sedimentation, that's not going to be a great place for an artificial reef. And therefore, that platform should be completely removed. But if you assess a platform on a case-by-case basis, you not only have to look at location, you also have to look at structure. So like you said, what about floating? Um, There's all different types of production facilities, spars, FPSOs that are floating. They don't have this connection to the seafloor. So is that still a viable habitat? And the Only places where they've been looking into this and doing some research is in the Gulf, and they have successfully reefed one one spar, so it's a floating facility. It's called the Red Hawk Spar. And we were Blue Latitudes was able to go and do a remotely operated vehicle survey of that structure. We were looking at the marine life post-reefing to see how's it doing? Is it successful? What are we, what are we seeing there? And what we found is that since it had been placed, the marine life had begun to come back in the areas where it had gone away, as well as different recreational and commercially valuable species were being attracted to the hard substrate that was being provided by that spar facility. And the Gulf is really unique because the Gulf is a very, the Gulf of Mexico is a very sedimented environment naturally. There are only a few places where there's natural hard reefs and hard structure, and that's what marine life is attracted to. So any oil and gas structure that's providing a hard substrate or this habitat like infrastructure on the seafloor is very likely going to attract marine life
1: fascinating i think everyone listening in can really see the incredible opportunity for tools like Fishlat and the work that you're doing to to really enhance ocean health let's go into the next sort of phase of the conversation which is a little bit about you and and your co-founders tell us about your your why why are you working on this ocean challenge area and what's your sort of real attraction to the ocean ocean health
2: I really became interested in this specific, I mean, I never going in and studying marine science, I don't think I ever thought, oh, cool, I'm going to work with oil and gas. That sounds like a great idea. I think most young marine biologists are thinking about swimming with whales or, you know, dolphins or something like that. But what I really loved about this issue is that it's based in, in a reality that we all live in. We all, I drive my car to work. I, you know, I rely on these fossil fuels and we will continue to use our oceans for many purposes, including energy production. And as such, what we really, what I really find is the future of ocean conservation can no longer be us against them. And our work through Blue Latitudes allows us this opportunity to find and develop tools like FishLat that help us work together to sustainably use our oceans without using them up.
1: Great. And so, yeah, tell us a little bit about how you got into this and perhaps talk about some of your co-founders as well.
2: Yes. So I met my co-founder, Emily Hazelwood, when we were in graduate school at Scripps. And we are, we're co-founders of Blue Latitudes. We have a couple of fantastic marine scientists, Amy Everett included, who have come in and collaborated on the development of FishLatin, really pivotal in creating this tool, Um, Emily and I have very different backgrounds. My background was more in ocean technology. I had worked at Google before going to graduate school, and I was really interested in these issues of communicating the value of a healthy ocean and how do you do that on a larger scale using Google Earth and Google Maps. And when I got to graduate school and met Emily, she was telling me about her experiences in, in the Gulf, Gulf of Mexico, where she was cleaning up the BP oil spill and working um, as a field tech in that effort. And what she found was that the fishermen that BP had hired to drive their field sampling boats were talking about fishing out on those platforms again. And she thought, what? Why would you want to fish out here? We're cleaning up an oil spill. This is crazy. And that's when she first learned about the Rigs to Reef program and the fact that these structures have important habitats that provide valuable fisheries for a lot of recreational and commercial fishers. And she, started, she shared that with me. And I thought, well, is that just in the Gulf or is it applicable here in California? And what about around the world? And that's really where we the idea started for our company. And um, I was really interested in this issue of how do how would i explain to my grandma that these are an oil platform could have a important reef below it that just seems especially from a californian perspective that just seems so out there and and almost impossible really so i was really interested in that challenge and Emily and I took it on from there and started Blue Latitudes almost 10 years ago.
1: Fantastic. Just tell us a little bit, I've seen obviously the images and the videos that you capture when you're out there assessing these structures, but tell us what it was like the first time diving or free diving around these structures. So take us there to sort of get a sense of just how uh, biodiverse they can be and how beautiful they can actually be underwater.
2: Yes. So when I first dove on one of these platforms, it was approaching it from the surface and these are really loud, active structures. So you can feel the energy coming off of them. They're making a lot of noise. There are people walking on the top sides, you know, that permanently live there and we're there to dive below this mammoth industrial structure. That was very intimidating. But once we went over the side of the boat and got into the water, I was just struck by the beauty of the marine environment there. And this was in California where the water is a little bit colder, but the marine life can be incredibly beautiful. On California's structures, we see scallops, anemones, schools of jack mackerel. You can see some of our state saltwater fish, the garibaldi that are bright orange, and they nest and make their permanent home on these platforms. So it was Truly an incredible diving experience, and I've been been hooked ever since.
1: And like you were saying, obviously, fishermen, I'm guessing both recreational and commercial, will fully understand the opportunities surrounding these structures. Is there? Is it sort of like anyone can go out there and go fishing, or is there certain rules in certain jurisdictions that prevent that? Because it turns out that, uh, like you said before, your fishermen become some of your great advocates, but can also be a bit of resistance too, when it comes to new structures going in that might affect trawling zones and various things. Tell us a little bit about those fishermen.
2: And working with the fishermen is so important. That's why the fish lot tool has really been able to kind of bridge some of those information gaps between the fisheries stakeholders and their knowledge or our knowledge of how these structures impact their resources. And typically, fishermen do not like structures or anything or really any change in their fishing environment. And understandably so. Some of these are generational family fishermen who have been going to the same resources in the st- same spots for years. In areas like the Gulf of Mexico, fishing around an oil platform is commonly done. It's recreationally done. They're allowed, fishermen are allowed to come up and cast, it's, it's not an issue. And trawl fishermen are aware of where all the structures are and will trawl in the vicinity of a structure, but maintain a certain distance. In other areas like in California, there are only two platforms where you can actually go up and, and fish. Others would require special permissions. And this is true of other structures around uh, sort of on an international basis and where it's maybe not as common for fishermen to just be going up to these structures to fish. So it really has to be looked at kind of in a location by location basis. It also depends on how far these structures are from the nearest port, because fishermen don't necessarily want to travel 70 to 200 nautical miles just to get to a fishable location for the day. So it it definitely is a case by case, something that we have to look at. One of the tools that we use to do that is Global Fishing Watch, which they're a partner in the development of FishLat. And Global Fishing Watch is a, is a software company that actually st- was in, initially started at, at Google. And what they do is they track commercial fishermen in relation to marine protected areas, oil platforms, all sorts of things. And they're an incredible resource for us because they help us to know where the fishermen are and where they have been. We can look back into their archives for up to the past 20 years and look at how fishing patterns have changed and where fishermen are going and why. So that's been um, a really great partnership in the development of Fish Lot.
1: Absolutely. Such incredible software really changed the game in seeing the unseen that happens out there on the global oceans. Let's talk a little bit more, uh, I guess, about fish Fishlat. You could obviously reference Blue Latitudes as well, but what are some of your key achievements uh, over the years. And you could also use this as an opportunity to talk about some of those key challenges, right? It's it's hard running a business. It's hard building new platforms. It's it's, it's a tough game. So tell us about some of your key achievements, but also some of your key challenges. Yes. So
2: FishLab was really just an idea until we were awarded a National Science Foundation grant last year, and that gave us the seed funding to really develop out not only our partnerships, but the tool itself and create our prototype. And in that development process, I think we've learned so much about our end users, what they're looking for and why and how we can better adapt our tool to serve their needs. I think that's probably been one of the, the hardest things to overcome is that we're, I think we would get into our own mind about what FishLat should be and how it could serve our end users. But the, actually going on interviewing our potential end users and getting their feedback on the prototype has been so valuable. It's revealed to us where we have data gaps or where there needs there's need for improvement. And it's going to help us take the tool to the next level so that when we do release it commercially to the market um, it's an actually usable and useful i should say not just usable but a useful tool
1: just dive a little bit deeper there into sort of how uh, a normal day at the office doing the work that you do with with blue latitudes versus sort of building this scalable tech platform for this what could become a really huge global market so tell us a little bit about even just that process and you know what are your real aspirations i suppose with with fishlad as well in terms of the commercial opportunity and and sort of why it maybe lights up the team when you sort of think about the potential for it versus maybe some of your other business offerings
2: yes so developing a software-based or web-based tool is unlike the majority of the work that we do at Blue Latitudes, which is primarily consulting. We work with remotely operated vehicles to do marine life surveys on oil platforms, and we're very into the technical marine marine data and life. We're looking at pictures of fish and invertebrates on structures. That's that's our typical day-to-day. So diving into the development of a fish lack tool and learning about GIS and and spatial planning and how we can create something that's really usable for our end users has been an, an exciting challenge and I think what keeps our team really revved up and excited to continue to develop it out is that we're finding that this tool is more valuable than we necessarily realized we're on sitting in on meetings for federal government's planning through NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And they're planning for offshore wind and they are seeking tools like FishLab to help them work together sustainably with the offshore wind companies and the fishermen. And they're getting so much pushback from the fishermen. So we're really excited because right now our prototype is focused on decommissioning and we have a lot of applications for oil and gas. But what we see is how those applications are easily transferable to the offshore wind industry. And we see our management agencies in the US that are looking for this tool right now. So we're very motivated to get it to them as soon as possible so that they can make those important decisions and find alignment between the wind companies and fisheries.
1: Yeah, that's super exciting. and. It leads into my next question, which was around the the path ahead. What have you got planned over the next one to two years? It sounds like you'll be doing a lot of work, working with those administrators, trying to see how those applications can be obviously enhanced in decommissioning is sort of where you started, but also on that horizon, the uh, the offshore wind industries.
2: Yes. So over the next couple of years, our plan is to expand the tool outside of oil and gas so that it has applications for other industries such as offshore wind. We're also looking into aquaculture and also expand it geographically outside of the Gulf of Mexico to reach other regions in the U.S. and around the world.
1: That is super cool. All right. I'm sure everyone's found this a very fascinating conversation. Now, we do have lots of emerging entrepreneurs and passionate ocean impact innovators listening in. So we love this little question, which is to sort of ask you for a couple of key learnings or experiences or insights that you'd like to share that might help others on their ocean impact journey. Mm,
2: That's a good question. I would say that some of the best advice that I've ever gotten in that regard is to just not to not be afraid to reach across the aisle and work with non-traditional organizations or groups. Maybe those that are typically anti either ocean conservation or maybe have a stigma around them as not being interested in conserving the ocean. What I found is that through opening up the door and having conversations with groups like that, there really are opportunities for change and business opportunities, and it can um, really provide for a fruitful path forward to, to work together and bring in these groups to make a difference in protecting our oceans.
1: What does that sort of look like you know, in, in the real world? Like, how has that occurred in the past through your own experiences? Was it uh, How did the meetings occur, and, and, and what was it like sort of uh, breaking bread and, and finding that common territory?
2: Yeah. Well, I I love to use the example of like an oil and gas company, because I feel like they definitely get the rap of being that they don't really care too much about the environment or the ocean, anything like that. And what I love is that through going to decommissioning conferences in Houston and meeting with these groups, talking to them about the reefs that are growing on their platforms, what I found is that people we're working with there get so excited they are sending us pictures from their rovs of really interesting marine life they're going down and doing surveys at super deeps in the super deep sea on their platforms so something down at like seven thousand feet water depth and they see sperm whales they see these incredible like deep sea creatures that are so fascinating and they're sending us these pictures and these images being like can you believe this marine life is down here how do we protect it? What does it mean? And all of a sudden, they're interested and engaged and having a conversation about conserving the ocean, which is probably not something that they would normally talk about in a day. But for me, it's very inspirational to have this conversation. And it, it uh, gives me hope for the future of our oceans.
1: Not to mention when the the CFOs and the directors start to learn how much money they can save when they look towards uh, reefing as opposed to full decommissioning as well, which I'm sure makes it quite appealing as well. (laughs) Yes awesome well uh we're getting right to the end of this uh awesome conversation now Um uh, we're really just going to focus now on how people can follow and support your journey and obviously we can use this as an opportunity for you to share anything that you really wanted to talk about today but you haven't had a chance to get to
2: sure yeah well you asked a lot of really great questions and people can follow us on social media we're at the blue latitudes foundation on instagram and facebook we're also on linkedin you can check out our website rig to or the blue latitudes foundation.org and or fishlat.com there's lots, lots of different ways you can find us and follow us and we we hope to stay connected if anybody listening has any questions or wants to follow up i invite all of you to reach out to me. My emails amber at bluelatitudes.org. Always interested to hear from new folks and make connections possible.
1: Very cool. You just reminded me of, of sort of two questions that I might just throw in here if you don't mind at, at the end there. There was sort of one there around your organizational sort of structure. I know you mentioned that you got the foundation and then these sort of companies and spin-offs. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. But Yeah, also just, I guess, acknowledging that, you know, you've obviously opened up your your email address. We see so many passionate individuals and researchers out there looking at this problem, not just for reefing, but also opportunities to turn existing structures into aquaculture setup. So whether that's for seaweed or other types of aquaculture. So I know we were sort of almost wrapped up the conversation there, but I'd love to get a, a quick insight onto onto your structuring because that might help other people out there with startups think about how they establish a foundation alongside a business. And then maybe if you've got a little window there on, uh, on some of the opportunities around aquaculture and seaweed farming related to, to offshore infrastructure.
2: We started Blue Latitudes as a LLC for-profit company and... The reason why we did that is because starting your own foundation, a nonprofit foundation, is incredibly challenging, at least in the U.S. You have to have a lot of money up front and resources with lawyers and things like that. So we thought, oh, maybe it's just easier to do it as an LLC. And eventually we were able to develop the consulting services and really the business plan to keep us afloat while at the same time we were applying for grants and seeking sort of nonprofit donations and things like that through a fiscal partnership with Dr. Sylvia Earle's nonprofit, uh, Mission Blue. And so for the first three years of our company, we we did have a couple of small consulting jobs, but we were really almost functioning as this nonprofit un, under Sylvia Earle's umbrella. And that fiscal partnership was, was really valuable for us. It helped us to meet a lot of great connections. We were able to get some of our biggest funders behind us like Patagonia and a few others that really were supporting us in the beginning. And then by the time 2018 rolled around, we kind of had enough momentum to form our own nonprofit. So we created a the Blue Latitudes Foundation, which runs in parallel with our consulting firm. And our consulting firm is really focused on... Working with industry and supporting them in their decision making. And FishLat is a product underneath our Blue Latitudes company. And the Blue Latitudes Foundation is focused on research, education, and outreach. And we apply for grants and conduct research, all of which really support some of the work we're doing on the LLC side. So there's definitely, they definitely support each other in that capacity, although they have two different missions. And it also it allows us to do the I guess you could say the fun part where we get to go diving and and go to classrooms and talk to people about these important issues surrounding you know these important issues in the ocean that you find at the intersection of industry and the environment. And so it gives us that avenue to really do
1: that. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's super helpful for people because, you know, structuring and maybe people are so driven by impact and making a, a positive contribution and they you can realize that you can sort of chop and change to some degree. You can you can adjust how a non profit entity can sync with a, a profit for purpose and ultimately lead to, you know, a long term upside as well as impact, which is Kind of like you're cracking the code when you get that one right. Awesome. And then just lastly, uh, yeah, just talk a quick uh, quick minute or two about uh, what you've seen happening with decommissioning in relation to aquaculture.
2: Oh, yes. So there have been a lot of discussions around repurposing oil platforms for alternative uses and aquaculture being one of those. Primarily, there there's not like a specific case study that I can point to, but the Primary advocate for it, who's really leading the charges in the Gulf of Mexico, called the Gulf Offshore Research Institute. And they are a nonprofit that is exploring these alternative uses and actually getting the permitting and the infrastructure behind them to test it out. How successful can it be? And when it comes to aquaculture, what is the perfect mixture of environment and inputs, outputs to really have a a successful aqua farm and so they're doing some great research there i would recommend that people check them out as if you're interested in in this topic because they are they're really leading the charge on
1: it. awesome amber well thank you for uh, treating me with those last couple of responses uh i've really enjoyed the conversation today i'm sure everyone listening in has and we'll be sure to follow you on your socials and keep an eye on all the great work you're doing. Big props to the whole team, and thank you again for your time.
0: Yes, thank you. Guys, we hope you enjoy this episode. Please leave us a bit of feedback. It really helps us out. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review. On Spotify, you can let us know what you loved about the episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to drop us a comment or hit the like button. Uh, It means a lot. Cheers, guys.